everybody. Welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Dana Trubiana, and I cover infamous gangsters every week in a true crime-like format. My show, Mob Times, comes out every Tuesday evening at 5 p.m. Well, it's Tuesday, it's 5 p.m., so here I am. Go get your snacks, go grab your drinks, grab your dinner, whatever you're doing for the next hour or so, and settle in because we are going even more in-depth into Carmine Persico today. If you haven't watched part one, I strongly, strongly advise you to turn this off right now and go over to part one, watch that, and then come back here. The link is the first thing you're going to see in the description of this video. You're probably not going to understand a lot of the things that I'm going to go over today if you haven't watched part one, so go watch part one. Plus, bonus time to watch an episode, hang out with me, kill some time, you know, extra media to consume, you know, it's all good. Okay, so if you're still here, I'm assuming that you listened to me and you watched part one and we're all up to date and we can continue. I'm not gonna re-go over everything. So from here on out, I assume that you saw part one and you know everything we talked about in it. We're all up to date and we can continue. Cool, good job, I'm super proud of you. So last week, I told you guys that I really like digging into mobsters and doing like multiple part episodes on each mobster. And that's what I'm going to do from now on because I really enjoy it. And I do this because I enjoy it. There really wouldn't be any reason to do this if I didn't enjoy it. I don't make money. I don't do ads. Like I just enjoy it. I really like it. So I'm going to do what I enjoy. And that is why this is part two of Carmine Persico. I know there's going to be at least three parts. We'll see about four because there's a lot of information here, so it might go into a fourth. But I feel like I could probably get it done in three parts. We're going to try. So anyways, usually when I have a multiple part episode, I say like, oh, well, I have so much information I need to go over and I don't want to do a life update because I'm going to take away from the episode. So we'll just jump right in. But hey, if we're going to be doing multiple part episodes on every mobster from here on out, I can't just never do a life update again. You guys are my personal diary and I need to unload and vent. So hopefully you enjoy hearing about my day and what's going on in my life and blah, blah, blah. But really, it's for me because I just need someone to talk to and to know that someone else is listening. So that is you. Don't forget that there is chapters on every video that I do. So if you don't want to listen to me talk about my life, if you have no interest in that, it's totally fine. Just go to the chapters, skip to the next chapter, and bing, bam, boom, you are hearing about Persigo again. Yay. So life update. I started the progesterone injections. It's better this time because I only have to do it every three days, which is great because I have other ways that I'm doing it in between. But on the days that I have to do it, holy crap, the freaking needle that goes into my hip is gigantic. It sucks bad. I put numbing cream on it for like a half hour before I do the injection. And then 15 minutes before the injection, I put an ice pack on and still with those precautions, it still hurts like a bitch. I have an embryo transfer scheduled for tomorrow morning. So by the time you see this, I will already be done with that. I'll try to put an update into my next video. But honestly, even after tomorrow, you don't get confirmation on if you're pregnant or not for like two agonizing weeks. So I don't know if I'll have an update. But if there is an update, I'll give it to you guys. Fingers, toes, and freaking eyes crossed, guys. That actually is why I am up at this ungodly hour. It is 3.30 a.m. for me right now. And I'm recording because I'm really trying to stay up throughout the whole night. Because I have the transfer at 10 o'clock. And I really want to go do the transfer, come home, and sleep the day away, and let the transfer do its work. And I'm not going to be able to do that if I sleep all night. That's just not possible. So I am staying up all night recording an episode. And hopefully that means that I'll be able to sleep all day tomorrow and the transfer will do its work and everything will work and blah. Okay, so let's keep digging into Mr. Carmine Persico, shall we?
when we left off in part one, we discussed how Tony Schatz about Marco had switched sides in the matter of two months. In August of 1961, he was arrested for shooting a cop in the face while fleeing the scene of the attempted murder of Larry Gallo. And then by October 24th, he was arrested for hanging out at the clubhouse with the Gallows after his cousin, Joey Maggs, was killed on the street. And then a few months later, he rescued a bunch of kids from a burning building with this crew. So he's like homie hopping. I don't know. I don't know where he stands. The peace with the Gallows held, and it was cited in the newspapers in January of 1962 that he had saved six children from a burning building in the middle of the night along with the Gallo brothers. Carmen Persico had been besties with the Gallows growing up, but when the Gallo brothers made a move against Perfacci and Perfacci issued a price on the Gallows' heads, Persico attempted to kill Larry Gallo along with Tony Schatz, and that is how he earned the name The Snake, because he was like besties with the Gallows, and then he tried to kill Larry, and everybody else was like, you snake, you bitch. And that's how he got the nickname Snake, and uh, now he's known as Karma and the Snake Persico. Well-deserved nickname, I'm not gonna lie. So Perfacci puts out a hit on the Gallows, and the Gallo brothers turn around and they kidnapped a bunch of dudes from the upper echelons of the Perfacci family. But Joe Gallo was picked up and put in jail because the cops are like, oh, hell no, this is not going to happen. Gallo, come here, bud. And they put him in jail. They're like, you're not going back out on the streets. Absolutely not. So because Joe Gallo was taken off the streets, they were able to release the hostages pretty peacefully. Nobody died. Everything was okay. I mean, some lifelong grudges were born, but, you know, at the end of the day, kidnapping couldn't have gone better. One dude, like, peed his pants. That was, like, the worst thing that happened. So now by this point, Joe Gallo and Carmine Persigo are both sitting in prison. In November of 1961, Gallo was convicted of conspiracy and extortion for attempting to extort money from a businessman. He was sentenced to 7 to 14 years in prison. This sentence was served at Greenhaven Correctional Facility, Attica Correctional Facility, and Auburn Correctional Facility. He remained in jail until 1971, so he served almost his entire sentence, and he ended up only getting out because he, like, saved a CO's life during a prison riot. So while all of this is going on, Joey Gallo is in jail. Now, Persico is also in jail, and he's in and out constantly for a multitude of charges. At this time in particular, he is in for his role in the attempted murder of Larry Gallo. He also had a truck hijacking charge that he was in and out of jail with, and that led back to a 1959 truck hijacking that netted $50,000 worth of cargo from the linen that was in the back of the truck. And don't worry, we're going to go fully through that case. Okay, so let's go through that trial while we're here instead of going back later. On July 28, 1959, less than two years after Anastasia was killed, so far less than two years after Persico had been made and handed a crew, because remember, Persico was made and handed a crew pretty shortly after the murder of Anastasia because of his role in the Anastasia hit. So now, less than two years after Persigo has been handed a crew, his crew goes out and hijacks a truck from the Acres Motor Lines Terminal in Brooklyn, where the crew ended up making about $50,000 on the goods that were in the back of the truck. Nothing out of the ordinary. Crew regularly pulled jobs like this. Now, it's a little difficult to talk about this trial in terms of like where it fell in Persico's life, because as you'll see, this trial lasted forever. So like I went over 1959 a while ago, but I didn't bring this trial up because I didn't want to go all the way through until it was completed and mess everything up timeline wise. I also want to go through it all in one place. There's not really much point of like bringing up updates as we go along. But if you have an 11 year thing that's going on, it's just difficult. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the entire thing here and then we'll rewind and go back to like the 1959 time. So Persico's whole crew got roped up and arrested in April of 1960 for the Acres case. He was arrested with Hugh McIntosh, Salvatore Albanese, Ralph Sparrow, Joseph Joey Mags Magnasco, and George Lafonte, 
And all of them were carted to the station. So I think it's pretty safe to say that either this is Carmine's entire crew or this is a big chunk, like most of Carmine's crew. Joey Maggs was killed on October 5th, 1961. I went over him in part one. So he only made it to two of the set of five trials. So again, this is an 11 year trial. There's five trials split up over 11 years. Joey Maggs died after only going to two of those trials. And since you definitely watched part one, you know exactly what happened with Joey Maggs because we talked about this and you went back and watched part one, remember? So this arrest wasn't anything out of the ordinary. Like nobody got hurt. Nobody got killed. It's not even an exceptionally large amount of money that they had gotten from the score. It's just run of the mill. Like picture you go to work on a Tuesday. Maybe the secretary talks some shit about you and you go home and bitch a little bit to your husband. Like that is what this is. It is an everyday thing. Nothing stands out about this particular hijacking. It's just run of the mill. The reason that this crime in particular turned out to be such a big deal was because they got quite a few rats on it. Gaspar Vaccaro, a fellow mafioso, ended up flipping and becoming a government informant. Vaccaro testified about each part of the hijacking, like who did what, when, where they did it, like everything. He takes you through the entire freaking thing. Step by step, minute by minute, he takes you through it in this testimony. After being arrested for having used counterfeit money and threatened with a life sentence, if he didn't turn, he turned. (laughs) Which is kind of ridiculous. You're not going to go to jail for the rest of your life for using counterfeit money. Like, I don't care how powerful these cops out here have you believing that they are. You ain't going to jail for life for counterfeit money. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You just gave up your entire life. Your life is over. You become a rat, especially at that time where mafia rats are pretty uncommon. So you become a rat. You're living in like bumblefuck nowhere for the rest of your life, hiding, looking over your shoulder, protecting your family, because one day if somebody catches a glimpse of you, you're dead. Was it worth it to serve for counterfeit money? Like, no, no, it wasn't Vaccaro, you friggin' idiot. Another thing that made this trial super notable, outside of the fact that it was a trial that literally lasted 11 years, like it just dragged. So outside of that fact, something that made this trial very notable was the next rat that popped up. And on top of that, the fact that this trial would turn out to be the one and only criminal trial that famous mafia turncoat Joseph Falacci would ever stand trial on. Because you hear Joseph Falacci and you're like, oh shit, that guy must have put a lot of people in jail. He must have testified at a bunch of criminal hearings. You know, this is Sammy the Bull Gravano standing at like 140 criminal trials. But it's not. Joseph Falacci only stood on one criminal trial. He only testified against one criminal at their trial, and that is Carmine Persico. Now, Falacci, he wasn't even actually there for the crime. He's pretty much coming to this trial to tell them what he heard on the street. The fifth and very final trial, the one that was held nine years after the actual crime took place, was the only time that Valachi was ever called to testify in this trial. And the prosecution had no idea that he was being called until they actually said his name. Like, it was a weird day in the court because there was, like, a lot of cops and security present, but nobody had any idea this man was showing his face. So they called him to give hearsay evidence nine years after the fact of like, oh yeah, I heard that this happened. Like, what a dirty, dirty move. The very first trial that there was, it ended up with a hung jury. The second one, they were found guilty, but they didn't end up going to jail because the verdict was successfully appealed pretty quickly after the actual verdict was made. So they were found guilty, but they're still out on the streets. A third trial ended in a mistrial, and that was handed down in May of 1963. Remember that the original trial started in 1959, so the third trial took place in May of 1963. We are now four years later and three trials down. The mistrial was due to a hung jury and the fact that Carmine was shot during that time, and we'll go through that too. 
Number four led to a guilty verdict again, and he was sentenced to 14 years and nine months in prison. This one was also appealed, and the verdict was again struck down due to administrative and judicial issues. So like, you know, judicial and prosecutorial misconduct, those kind of things that got the guilty verdict overturned. And once again, they have a guilty verdict, but they're out on the streets, not in prison. The trial finally finished on May 9th, 1968, after the fifth trial ended in a guilty verdict. They were charged officially with robbery of merchandise, moving in interstate commerce, and conspiracy to commit the robbery in the first place. Herzogo's sentence of 14 years was set to begin on January 26, 1972. Vaccaro would later recant and swear that the hijacking that he had been testifying about was a different one. He was testifying this entire time about a different hijacking, and that Persico and Hugh McIntosh weren't even actually involved in this hijacking. And he made that testimony on January 23rd, 1972, three days before Persico was set to begin his sentence. Now, even though Vaccaro came out and went to a judge and was like, yo, I was wrong. This was a different hijacking I was talking about. I lied. Even though Vaccaro did that, the judge was like, nah, he may not have done this hijacking, but he's a scumbag. He deserves every single day that he's going to sit in prison for that 14 year sentence I just handed down. And we're not going to pretend that we didn't just hear that it was true because more than likely you were threatened or you were paid into this recantation. So we're going through with it. I don't care. We got a guilty verdict. Finally, we don't have an appeals court pushing it down. He's going to jail. So even with the star witness having recanted his entire story and saying that he lied the entire time he was on trial, Persigo began a 14-year jail sentence on January 26, 1972. Vaccaro's testimony had been all over the place the entire time. At first, he said that they stole a car that was used in the robbery the night before. But then when he was at trial the week before, there were like a ton of holes in his testimony. But like the judges and lawyers did not give a shit. They finally got a conviction after they had been fighting for this for 11 years. And they didn't care if God himself came down and exonerated Persico. He was going to jail for 14 years. This case, again, it went over the course of 11 years and the appeals process ended up going all the way up to the Supreme Court. So now remember in the beginning of this little mini story, I told you it was over 11 years and it's hard to tell the story in terms of time. Now we're going to rewind back to the present. So he's sentenced to 14 years, but that's not until 1972, 10 years from where we're at now. So now we're back in 1962. After all the fighting with the gallows, eventually a peace agreement was brokered in 1962, and that put an end to the first Colombo War. And the only reason that that was possible was because Joey was off the streets and in prison. As part of the peace agreement, Perfacci retained control over the family, but a lot of concessions were made to the Gallo faction. This included a share of the family's profits and a lot of increased autonomy within certain operations. So kind of like, well, we're sick of you telling us what we can do. You say that we can't drug deal. If we want a drug deal, we're going to drug deal. You better mind your business. Mind your business. So it, they just had a lot more of their own say over things. But at the end of the day, Perfacci is the boss of the family. Later that same year, in 1962, Persico was charged with trying to kill Larry Gallo, but the case was withdrawn because when Gallo was put on the stand, he would not cooperate. So what are you going to do? I mean, the main person that was hurt is saying, no, I wasn't. What are you talking about? I was never choked. Meanwhile, like this man walked around with the rope marks on his neck for the rest of his life. Joseph Perfacci passed away from liver cancer on June 6th, 1962. And Joseph Magliocho took over as the head of the family. Nobody in the world was sad to see Perfacci die. They were so happy that he wasn't the boss anymore. He was a terrible, terrible boss. However, the conflict with the Gallo group, it didn't go away. It kept going. Yeah, there was a peace agreement that was brokered, but let's be real here. There's animosity, there's hurt feelings, and that did not just go away because Perfacci died. 
We already talked about how the Gallows kidnapped the top-ranking members of the Colombo family, including Joseph Colombo himself. And it came to an end after Crazy Joe Gallo was taken off the streets and put in jail. In 1963, the Gallos made peace with the Magliocho-Persico faction through negotiations that were facilitated by the Patriarca family boss Raymond Patriarca, a crime boss that was based in Rhode Island and Boston, Massachusetts. One day later. Jump scare. I know it doesn't mean anything to you, because to you, I was here a second ago. But I actually wasn't. I was recording the other day, and as I told you, it was right before I was going in to have the embryo transfer done. And time just got away from me, so I didn't finish recording the other day. So now, this is days later. I got the embryo transfer on the 1st, and it is the 3rd now. So it's been a few days for me, and I just wanted to give a quick update. I got the embryo transfer. Everything went beautifully. No issues, no problems, no nothing. And we are now two days later. So... I don't have any updates. As I said on the previous video, it takes like a week or two to find out if it worked. So I'm just chilling and in that horrible, horrible wait time to see if it worked. So let's get back to the episode. Sorry to deter you, but I did want to let you know that it's days later and I didn't just like leave for two seconds. I left for days. Giuseppe Magliocho, known as Joe Maliac or Joe Evil Eye, was an Italian immigrant from Castello Mare del Golfo, Sicily. Which, if you're a longtime viewer of this channel, you've heard the name of that town a lot. Namely as the birth location of some mafia giants like Joseph Bonanno, Salvatore Maranzano, Magadino. A lot of really big mafia guys are from Castello Mare del Golfo. Magliocho was an extremely large man. He weighed in at over 300 pounds, but that didn't slow him down. He had all the energy in the world, and he used that energy to cook. He was an amazing chef, and he loved to cook, and he loved to eat. He had a very domineering personality, which scared the crap out of the people below him, because like he was very, I'm the boss, I take charge, you better listen to me. And it was scary, but at the same time, he was extremely decisive and forthcoming. So it's like, he's not going out there and like saying something and then going back on it or not making up his mind. He was decisive, he made up his mind, and you were going to listen to it, period. He was one of the five men that were captured by the Gallo crew in the beginning, the kidnapping that we were talking about. And so was his relative, Salvatore Mustachio. And he was also related to Stefano Magadino and by default, Joseph Bonanno himself, which makes sense because I swear to God, I think the entire town of Castello Merdel Golfo is just one big family. And that family is Joseph Bonanno's. He mainly made his money from illegal gambling and union racketeering. He ended up working his way through the ranks of the mafia by making a lot of money in illegal gambling. He survived the Castello Marisi War, and he was named as the first underboss to Joseph Perfacci, the original creator and first boss of the family in 1931, when the five families were originally established. Magliocho would stand as underboss for the next 31 years, attending infamous meetings such as the Statler Hotel in Cleveland and the Appalachian Conference in New York. And yes, that is how I goddamn say it. I don't want to hear that it's Appalachian. No, it's Appalachian. That's how I say it. I don't really care if you don't say it that way. That's how I say it. Hugh McIntosh, Persico's enforcer, was shot in the crotch by Punchy Iliano when he was attempting to assassinate Larry Gallo in a vehicle bombing in early 1963. Now, when the boss of a family dies, normally there's really not even any question. It's the underboss that automatically becomes boss of the family. And then if any changes need to take place, they will in the future. It's kind of like the president of the United States. If the president dies, guess what? The vice president is president now. And that's usually the way it works in the families. But that's not what happened here. When Magliocho was put in place as boss of the family when Perfacci died, especially given that Perfacci died while the Gallo Wars were going on, the commission did not okay Magliocho's power. They said that he could not be boss of the family. 
pretty much what they did was they said, hey, here's Joseph Bonanno. He is already leading his own family. Let's have him be the official boss of the Profaci family until this war is all sorted out. We don't feel like dealing with who's going to be boss of the family. We're going to put Joseph Bonanno in place as the boss. So all in all, the reality is there is no official boss of the Profaci family, and it just kind of gets absorbed into the Bonanno family. And now there's four families, not five, that have a seat on the commission, which is not great. That's not the reason. It's like saying there's three branches of the government and one of them are just going to not exist anymore. Like the whole point was to have a lot of input. And they just took that family out because they didn't want to see Magliocho as the boss of the family. And because the commission hated Perfaci. They really did. In 1963, Magliocho attempted to seize control of the mafia's governing body, the commission. And he planned to do this by plotting to assassinate three high-ranking mafia bosses, Tommy Lucchese, Carlo Gambino, and Stefano Magadino. I honestly don't believe that Stefano Magadino was ever a part of this plot. I think Bonanno just threw him in because he's in love with Magadino and he never would have plotted to kill him. But he was always kind of publicly trying to make it seem like he hated Magadino so that he could have Magadino in his own pocket. Like he would go and be like, oh, yeah, I hate you. And oh, I tried to kill you. But then the next day they'd be buddy buddy. It's just I feel like he does that in front of other people like, oh, yeah, I hate you. And then as soon as they walk out the door, it's like, hey, bud, what's up? Like they don't hate each other but he just does the most to make it seem like they do so that when Magadino goes in Bonanno's favor, it's not, oh, well, that's just another one of your pawns. It's, oh, no, I tried to kill him. Why would he side with me? You know, I think it was just that kind of like prowess. This is not good. He's trying to overthrow the commission and that's not great. The commission concluded on their own that Bonanno had to have been behind this. Like, there's no way that Magliojo came up with this plot to overthrow the commission. So they're like, you know what? We want to see Bonanno and we want to see Magliojo sit in front of us. Like, they put out an APB. Like, get over here right now. We need to talk to the both of you. In mid-1964, Bonanno fled to Montreal. And when you look in his book, he says that he went to Montreal in order to establish a cheese company there. But in reality, he's just trying to avoid being killed for the fact that he just tried to kill three people. And pretty much what he did when he fled to Montreal was he left Magliocho standing there with the bag in his hand. Like, Magliocho is on his own dealing with the commission. Magliocho at the time, he's really sick. And he also knows what deep shit he's in. Like, he knows he's about to get killed. He's in bad, bad shape right now. He knows that everybody knows he tried to kill three people, three very important people, and he's scared. So the commission summons him and he's really sick. He can't go anywhere. So he's like, all right, but like, I guess <laughs> I guess I'm going to die today. Let's go sit in front of the commission. So he goes in front of the commission and he's like, yeah, I did it. I'm not going to sit here and tell you guys I didn't do it. I did it. And he confesses his entire part of the scheme. When he confesses, he tells the truth. And with the truth, it becomes very clear that Joseph Bonanno, he's really the one that's behind this. He's really the brains of the operation. And he was the one that made this plan. His plan was to take out these guys, become the head of the commission, and make Magliocho his right-hand man after taking control and taking out anybody with similar power. Bonanno had been working on this plan for a while. Like, he originally had this plan with him and Perfacci. Magliocho just got roped into it because Perfacci died. Like, Magliocho was never the number one person that was supposed to do this. It was always supposed to be Perfacci, but then Perfacci died. So Bonanno's like, eh, I guess I'll settle for Magliocho. Magliocho originally got on board with the plan because he's pissed. He had been denied a seat on the commission earlier. So... He knows what an F.U. that is. To say no to the old underboss becoming boss, that's like the ultimate F.U. The commission did him dirty. Like, there was no reason that he couldn't be the boss of the family. He sat as the underboss for 30 years, and the commission was perfectly fine with that. So now you've got a pissed off Magliocho. He's mad, obviously, because he was snubbed. He wasn't allowed to be boss. And him being mad like that, that sets him up to be the perfect pawn for Bonanno to do whatever he wants. 
And now I personally think that this is all the worst because I think Tommy Lucchese is like one of the coolest guys ever born. I really like Tommy Lucchese. I got to do an episode on him in the future. But every time I hear him brought up in a situation, it's just like some super cool stuff that he does. Like he seems like a real dude. Again, I haven't done too much research on him because I haven't done a video. I'm going to do a video on him one day, but I like Tommy Lucchese. So I don't like the fact that he hatched this plan because if he would have taken out Tommy Lucchese, that would have sucked. So this whole plot to overtake the government of the mafia or the commission, this is the plan that was being put into place. Now, Joseph Colombo is a member of the Perfacci family. Joseph Colombo was given the job to take out Lucchese and Gambino. So now before the commission ever gets involved, pretty much what happens is Bonanno is getting with Perfacci and he's like, yeah, great. Like, let's take out these mafia bosses and I'll take over. I'll be the new boss of the commission. Then Perfacci dies. So Magliocho takes his spot and Bonanno just starts planning it with Magliocho instead of Perfacci. So he tells Magliocho, like, hey, go get someone to take care of this for us. Magliocho goes and he hires Joseph Colombo. Joseph Colombo is a member of the Perfacci family, and he was hired with the task of killing Lucchese and Gambino. When he was given that task, he turned around and alerted the commission. Interestingly enough, Colombo had only been given the job to kill Lucchese and Gambino. There was never any talks about killing Magadino. The only reason anybody ever thought that Magadino was included in the plot was because when Bonanno came and like confessed, he said, oh, I plan to have Magadino taken out. But nobody ever got that job to kill Magadino. So Magliocho has this whole plan in place. He's going to take out these commission guys. Bonanno's going to step in as boss of the commission. Magliocho is going to be number two. But his plan is foiled when he hires Colombo to kill Lucchese and Gambino. And then Colombo Uno reverses. And instead of carrying out the murder, he told on their asses. He knew that it would really help his position within the mafia to turn around to Gambino and Lucchese and tell them what was going on instead of like trying to take them out and most likely failing because Joseph Colombo isn't really that high on the social ladder. He's probably never going to get a chance to take out these mafia giants. So instead he turns around, he's like, hey, I got hired to kill you. You might want to do something about that. So again, the commission calls Magliocho and Bonanno in front of them. Magliocho is sick. He's dying, but he comes, he confesses, he tells them everything. And the commission took it seriously. They forced Magliocho to retire and they gave him a $50,000 fine. Forcing him to retire obviously means that he had to step down as the acting boss for the Perfacci family because he had been acting as the boss. He wasn't recognized as the commission's boss, so that means like he didn't have a seat on the commission. He wasn't in the governing body, but he was running day-to-day operations. He was the boss of the family. He just didn't have a say in the bigger scope of things. Think of it like Congress. If this situation played out in Congress, let's say it's a congressman and the people in, let's say, New York, People in New York, they need something from a congressman. Let's say they need, I don't know. I don't even know what congressmen do. But let's say they need something. They go to him. He's still a congressman, but he's not allowed to go to Congress and have a vote on if laws pass or anything like that. So it's not saying he doesn't have power. It's not saying he's not the boss of the family. He just doesn't have a spot on the commission. And now, because of this little plan of killing everybody and having Bonanno step in and own the commission, because Joseph Colombo turned around and ratted them out, now he's nothing. He's being forced to retire, and pretty much he has to walk away in shame. The only reason the commission doesn't order his immediate hit Because he's really sick. Like, he is dying quickly. And they just look at it like, it's really no point. Nature's gonna do our job for us. What's the point? He did end up dying pretty quickly after this. And there was like a conspiracy that the mafia had ordered him poisoned, so he died. But it was like proven that he didn't have poison in his system, but... They said that there was poison that wasn't tested for. I don't know. At the end of the day, he died. He was already sick. He died. Whether the mafia secretly poisoned him and he died or he was just an old man that was sick and the sickness killed him. It doesn't matter. He died pretty quickly after this. But the whole point is he is no longer the boss of the Perfacci family. Now, as a result of Columbo's loyalty and his intervention and his not going and trying to kill these two mafia giants, Joseph Colombo, 
the Uno Reverser himself, becomes the new boss of the family. And he was mostly backed by Gambino. Gambino was the first one to say like, oh, hey, he could have tried to kill us. He didn't. Let's reward his loyalty with the position of boss of the family. Which is kind of a joke because Joseph Colombo is nowhere near top ranking someone that you would see step into the boss position. But we are where we are and they made him the boss of the family. They immediately changed the family name because they really just want to rid themselves of any proof that Perfacci was ever boss of the family and now we have the Colombo crime family. On May 19th, 1963, Carmine Persico was attacked by Gallo gunman Pete the Greek, Punchy Iliano, and Rick DiMatteo in Brooklyn's Gowanus neighborhood. And that seems like their little hangout area. I was talking before about Gowanus Gardens. The Gowanus area is like where these guys were always hanging out. The time that he's attacked by these gunmen is right around the time that Columbo is taking control of the family. So as much as there doesn't seem to be like an ongoing gallo war at the time, there is still some serious beef between Persico and the gallows. And that's kind of illustrated when he's getting attacked at the same time as Columbo's taking over. During this attack, Persico is sitting there and he's just minding his goddamn business. He's driving an AMC Rambler with his friend Sally D'Ambrosio. And they're on their way to court. They're stopped at a light. They have to go to court. Just another day. As they're sitting at the light, they look over and what do they see? They see a truck that's filled with gallows soldiers. And that's like, oh no, holy shit, no bueno, do something. Now, the guys in the car next to them light this car the F up, like lit up. Persico was shot in the face, hand, and shoulder by the gallo men that were in this like panel truck that are drive-bying him. It's said that Persico spat up the bullet that had just hit him in the face. Like, what a fucking boss. He gets shot in the face and just spits it out. Like he's like spitting out chewing tobacco. What a monster. He was rushed to the hospital. Whether he got back in his car and drove to the hospital, which is like rumor slash conspiracy. Everyone's, oh, he got shot in the face and he got in the car and drove himself to the hospital. Or whether an ambulance took him. It really doesn't matter. He got to the hospital. Who cares how he got there? He lived through this harrowing situation that he probably should not have lived through. Normally, when men get shot in the face, they don't live through it. But he did. When police came to ask about the incident, because like, obviously, all bullet injuries are immediately reported to the police. So if somebody comes into a hospital riddled with bullets, the cops are getting called immediately. So as he's sitting in the hospital, the police come up to him and they're asking him like, listen, you're going to die. You have a bullet in your face, in your shoulder. You're not going to make it through this, but let's be realistic here. You're not going to live through this. Why don't you use your dying breath And tell us who did this to you so we can get justice for you. When they're asking him this, he just shook his head. This man held truer to Omerta than pretty much any other mafioso, like, ever. This little dust-up got Persico a new nickname, the Immortal, and he earned it. This was just life for him now. The war with the Gallows had really boiled down to Joe, Larry, and I always want to say Curly here, Joe, Larry, and Curly. (laughs) But it really boiled down to Joe, Larry, and Al Gallo versus Perfacci and Persico. Like, that is just what it was going to be. Persico's group was always, always going to win, though. They had the backing of the big guns. It's like World War II. Like, yeah, Germany was able to take over a whole lot of land, right? They were able to wreak havoc on the land around them. Yeah, they had some strong allies, and they had a lot of firepower behind them. They were not to be tussled with. The whole Axis powers, they weren't weak. They were an actual force to be reckoned with. This was not just an easy win. But... Once you put the U.S. and the U.K. into the mix, which considering that would be like Frank Costello, the commission, the National Crime Syndicate, these big dogs, once those boys start getting involved, you are done for. You're done. The big boys, they let World War II play out for a while before they got involved. You ever think of that? We didn't get involved in World War II right away. We sat back and watched it happen, just like these big guys sat back and watched the war between Persico and the Gallows wage. They didn't step in right away, but the backing was always there. 
Persigo always knew that he had them. When they did get involved, it was over with. And in World War II, when the big boys got involved, guess what? The war was over with. And that's what happened here. The big boys are letting it play out. They are not really stepping in to interfere. They're not stepping in to stop it. But the fact that Gallo ends up eventually dead in a restaurant means that the big boys did get involved. And that was always going to happen. You don't go up against the commission. You just don't do it. The Gallows, they had to learn the hard way. But Persico, he knew from day one. He's not stupid. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew every move he made. He thought three steps ahead. And he landed on the side that was always going to win. And that's not to say that the Gallows didn't put up one hell of a fight. That's not to say that they didn't have firepower and just absolute power behind them. But they were never going to win. That doesn't mean that there wouldn't be some bumps and bruises along the way, though. This is one prime example of that. A bullet to the face is never a fun thing. It's never going to be fun. And that vehicle had been built up and altered to be protected because there was a failed attempt to put a bomb in his car in 1961. So Persico had actually reinforced this vehicle and still caught three bullets. But that's also not to say that Persico's side didn't dish just as much as they got. On one occasion, on December 2nd, 1961, Persico dressed up as a woman as him and Sally D'Ambrosio made another attempt at Larry Gallo. And they drove around dressed up as women in a sports car with rifles draped across their skirts. They were constantly just riding around looking for gallows that they could shoot at and try to kill. Persico was put in prison on an extortion-related charge not long after he was shot in the face. By the fall of 1963, Magliocho had prevailed in the shooting war, and Joe Gallo had been put behind bars, so both Joe Gallo and Carmine Persico are both in jail at the time, and these men are not boys. They're not in the same prison, but you gotta think that there's some kind of prison interconnected web, and the fact that they're both in at the same time is probably not great for either of them. Neither one died. But you got to think that if there's a war waging on the streets between the factions, I'm sure some shit went down in prison. Neither one died, neither one got mortally hurt, but life probably wasn't that easy for either of them in prison. When Colombo was bumped up to boss, he officially made Carmine Persico a capo in the Colombo family. When the boss of the family dies or a new boss takes over in any capacity, every single person in that family loses their rank. All the capos go down to regular old soldiers, and the new incoming boss usually appoints his own capos. Usually he keeps at least most of the capos in place. It probably took a power struggle for him to get there in the first place, and when you become boss, you're trying to quell all the issues in the family. You're not really trying to create more, and if you demote somebody who's been like a big dog in the family for a long time, it's probably going to cause a lot of animosity now that they're just a regular old soldier. So for the most part, they do keep their capos in place. So under Perfacci, Persico is a capo, but he's just like another capo. When Colombo took control of the family, one of the first things he did was appoint Persico in the position of a capo. That means he has a lot more power and control in this new family that's being put together by Colombo. Colombo becoming boss was a huge, huge deal for Persico, and they became besties. They had always been close. They kind of grew up together. But the fact that Colombo became boss and now Persico is one of his top capos, it made them really close. There's a million pictures that the FBI took showing like Colombo and Persico huddled together, discussing secrets, just like besties everywhere. Everywhere you look, these two are hanging out. They're just, they're thick as thieves. That obviously put Persico in a very good position and on the fast track to move up the ladder even further. And the rise from like a baby to boss is one of the fastest you'll ever see in Persico. He just rose through the ranks so quickly and leaps and bounds above men that had been doing it 20 years longer. Now, Persico's crew, they're going through all the mafia trappings. They're doing extortion, illegal gambling, loan sharking, hijacking, especially truck hijacking. They're yada yada blah blah, demanding payments from local businesses, running illegal lotteries, doing numbers, placing illegal jukeboxes, gambling machines, everything. They are mafia's mafia. 
Persico enjoyed a lot of notoriety in the 1960s. The Gallo Wars had spent the better part of the last 10 years splashing his name across the front page of every newspaper tabloid. Like, his name was synonymous with the mafia. And his bullet to the face led to his name becoming very well known. His best friendship with Columbo helped a lot too, because Columbo, he turned into the John Gotti of that era. He was forever in the spotlight. So anybody who's standing next to him, guess what's going to happen? They're going to be in the spotlight too. So everybody who knows Columbo is the boss of the family. They know that Carmine Persico was somebody important because he's always around him. So this little young kid is probably somebody to keep an eye on. He also spent the better part of the 1960s in and out of court. That truck hijacking charge, that lasted the 11 years, and he was in and out of court regularly with that. And he had a lot of other side cases. He fell into the same hole that a lot of mafia dudes fall into. He enjoyed a very luxurious life, and he lived kind of a similar life to movie stars. He hung out with up-and-coming actresses who wanted to get their names in the paper, and they looked at going out with a big-time mafia guy like Persigo as an easier way than, you know, like, working, getting jobs. No, it was way easier to go out on town with Carmine Persigo. He hung out in the swanky nightclubs. He spent nights with Joe Namath. He had friends with big names in big places. So he's all over the place. Everybody knows he's in the mafia, and everybody is okay with it. Frank Costello had taken note of Carmine Persigo pretty early in his career. It was said that Costello took one look at him and saw the future of the mafia. And Costello kind of took him under his wing as like a protege type of role. Costello is probably what originally made Persigo leave the Gallo faction in the first place, if we're being honest. And when he did that, more than likely, he switched sides before he actually switched sides. He probably remained in the Gallo crew for quite a while, not really on their side, before he actually struck and tried to kill one of them, which was Larry at the bar. Costello more than likely left him in place as a trusted source, and that had a lot to do with why he got the nickname The Snake, because when he went after Larry, it made the whole Gallo crew question how long he had not really been their friends. Costello made sure that he didn't give up the trust of being on the inside of the opposing team in the war until it was absolutely necessary. Until it was the day that Larry Gallo was going to be taken out. But as we know, that police officer thwarted it. So Persigo ended up showing his hand and becoming an enemy of the Gallo crew for absolutely nothing. A nice little scar on Larry Gallo's throat and that's about it. By the late 1960s, his crew was one of the, if not the, most profitable crews in the entire family. He moved his family out to Long Island and he moved his headquarters to the Diplomat Social Club in Brooklyn. So he was living on Long Island, commuting to Brooklyn every day. His crew consisted of Hugh McIntosh, who was like his bodyguard, his brother Al Persico after he got out of jail, Jerry Lang, Carmine Franzis, and Greg Scarpa. I know I know the name Greg Scarpa from somewhere. It's littered in one of my videos somewhere, but for the life of me, I cannot find it. I know Greg Scarpato is the dude that owned the restaurant that Maranzano was killed at, and then they turned around and killed him to, like, quell the Maranzano people. But that's definitely not who I'm thinking of when I say I know Greg Scarpa. I could have sworn it was in the Roy DeMeo video, but maybe it's because Scarpa is known as the Grim Reaper, and so is one of DeMeo's boys. I don't know. I just know I know Greg Scarpa from somewhere, and I'm gaslighting myself because I'm like, I can't find it anywhere. Nowhere. I know I've talked about him before, but... I don't know. It's driving me crazy. It's driving me nuts. So if you guys like see one of my other videos and you hear me say the name Greg Scarpa, tag me so that I know I'm not losing my goddamn mind. One last member of his crew is a pretty crazy one that I did not know about. Tony Sirico, a kid that got into the family and was arrested 28 times during his employment by Persico for crimes including disorderly conduct, weapons charges, extortion, coercion, robbery, possession of a dangerous drug, and assault, went on to play Paulie Gutierrez 
in The Sopranos, which is just so cool. I knew some people in The Sopranos were hooked up, but I had no idea that Paulie was like real life so deep in the actual mafia. I really wonder if he ever became a made man. I wonder if he ended up kicking up profits that he made from The Sopranos to Carmine Persico. It would be hilarious to know that the actual mafia was getting paid for a show that was being made about the mafia. Like, I absolutely love that little parable right there. I love it. He got into acting because one time that he was sitting in jail, he was doing a four-year stint, almost two full years at Sing Sing. One of those times that he's sitting in jail, an acting trope that had ex-convicts in this little trope visited the prison and they convinced him to give acting a try, and he did. He started out as an extra. He popped up in a lot of gangster notable movies. He was in Crazy Joe, Goodfellas, Mob Queen, and Gotti. Once he got the position in The Sopranos, he started taking on bigger roles. He became besties with Woody Allen, who wrote seven parts in seven different movies for him. And he also played in a few cartoons. Most notably, for me at least, is the gangster dog that they replaced Brian with when Brian died on Family Guy. I don't know if you guys remember that. Do you remember that? I know a lot of my viewers are like my age-ish, so I don't feel super old when I say this, but oh my god, do you guys remember when Brian died on Family Guy? And people went out and got tattoos saying R.I.P. Brian, like the whole world fell apart because Brian died. And he was written back into the show like two or three episodes later. (laughs) It's so funny to think about like what a big deal things were in the infancy of social media. I saw so many R.I.P. Brian tattoos on MySpace. It's wild. Sirico originally tried out for the part of Uncle Junior on The Sopranos, but he didn't get it and he was instead offered the role of Polly Walnuts. His only criteria in accepting the role was that his character would never become a rat. I wonder if they went to him and like asked him questions about real mafia life, like what the guys in the families did and all that. Like, I know there was a few guys in there that had some connections to the mafia, but I really wonder if they went to him because he was a real life member and asked him questions. So I was going to record a lot more of this part. But first of all, I didn't realize it would take me this long to get to this point. Second of all, I went outside to throw a frisbee for my dog because I was going to keep going for a while on this video. And I got bit on the forehead. Do you see this? It's gigantic. I'll put a picture of like what it actually looks like because you can't really see it here. And I waited like a half hour to just record this part. And I'm pissed off and I'm over it. So I'm going to end this episode here. I will see you guys next week. If you want to know what happens next with Persico, Colombo, Gallo, the whole Colombo family, you will just have to tune in next week. Next week, we're going to discuss two of the Mafia's most public headline-grabbing hits. We're going to go through an entire war. We're going to go through an entire charitable organization. And if there's time next week, we will get into the biggest court case that the Mafia has ever seen, the commission trial. Thanks so much for watching. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and that you come back next week for part three. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, comment, follow, do all the things, and I will see you next week. Bye.